how many of us really understand what's going on right now online? Humans have created an entire virtual world with enormous social, economic and political power, which we basically live in now. We work, shop, meet our partners and learn about the world online. But as citizens, we don't understand it and we don't know how to control it. You're listening to Ideas at the House. I'm Edwina Throsby and today we're bringing you a really brilliant session from the Antidote Festival. To help us understand the implications of our move online better, this session brought together two world experts, Moscow-based journalist Andrei Soldatov and Cambridge Analytica whistleblower Christopher Wiley. They're with the editor of The Guardian Australia, Lenore Taylor. Welcome, everybody. Welcome, Chris, and welcome, Andre. I know for sure, because we've just been having a discussion in the green room, that this is going to be an excellent conversation. It's not quite a year and a half, I think, since you blew the whistle on Cambridge Analytica to our Sunday sister paper, The Observer and The New York Times, revealing how that company was using improperly accessed Facebook profiles from, I think it turned out to be 87 million people, um, to target advertising, political advertising, but to do a whole lot more than that. And I think in the ensuing time, Cambridge Analytica has become a bit of a code word, like a all things bad on the web. But I think it's important that we start by actually just rewinding a bit and understanding what it was sure. that you revealed then and what the importance of it was. Sure. Um, <clears throat> so when I, um, when I first joined what later became Cambridge Analytica, it wasn't, it, that didn't exist yet. Uh, so I joined a, um, a British military contractor called uh, SCL Group. Um, my predecessor um, died in Kenya, uh, and they were looking for a new uh, research director, um, one who had um, more experience with data modeling um, and what ended up becoming profiling. Um, the purpose of the research that we were doing originally was intended for Western militaries to use. Um, historically, Western militaries have not invested much in information operations or cyber operations because you have generals who like things that blow up, so they're boys with toys, and they think of military R&D as missiles but you can't shoot a missile at the internet. And when you look at where, for example, ISIS, which was an emerging threat at the time, where it was recruiting, um, when you look at uh, sort of a lot of non-state actors who were posing real security threats to the United States or the UK, they were online. So and they were trying to target pro um, recruiting? They were recruiting people uh, and disseminating, whether it was hate propaganda or anti-Western propaganda like you, you get in Eastern Europe. Um, and so what we ended up working on was methods of profiling and identifying um, who is likely to be a target of that information, who is likely to be a target for recruiters, um, what, and, and also means of, um, frankly, manipulating people's behavior um, for security reasons. So, if, so to give you a tangible example, uh, counter-narcotics operations in South America um, often involved, um, you know, actually in, in the old days, actually sending people in situ to go and meet people around your target. Often there were high-value targets, some guy running 
a narcotics operation, whether it was a mistress or a family member or whatever, to start a profiling that person and then feeding them information so that they would act on it and make a mistake that you could then exploit. When Facebook and other social profiles, social uh, media platforms came about, um, it was a real boon for like intelligence agencies and security agencies because all of a sudden, your target's mistress uh, and his other mistress and you know his mom and his you know whomever, they were all online. And all of a sudden, you, you didn't have to actually go and invest months and months and months. You could actually go and start to disseminate information at those people. Um, in order to identify you know, what, who was your prime target and how you should frame that information, that's where profiling came in. And so oftentimes, you would first target the lowest hanging fruit, which were people who were more narcissistic or more neurotic, because if you are you know, higher in those kinds of traits, you're more prone to um, you know, paranoid or conspiratorial ideation. Um, and you, know, the, you would interfere in the operations and functioning of, of, of that kind of organization. So they flipped that into politics. And then um, there was an introduction to Steve Bannon. Um, one of our clients met people who worked for Steve Bannon on a plane. Um, my old boss, Alexander Nix, got an introduction. Uh, originally, they wanted, you know, you know, Steve at the time was uh, the editor of Breitbart, which is a very right-wing, uh, you know, website. Um, and Andrew Breitbart, who founded it before he died, had this vision for Breitbart, and he, he would always say that politics exists downstream from culture. So if you want to change politics, you first attack culture, because politics will just flow from that. But Breitbart became quite niche, and it became sort of a glorified hate blog for straight white dudes who can't get laid. And um, no, actually, like, look up incels. Like, I'm not, I'm literally not kidding. Um, <laughs> and, you know, it, it was not making the impact that, you know, Breitbart had envisioned. And when Steve Bannon found out that there were contractors who were willing to potentially work with him, on um, using the same kinds of manipulative techniques that the military would use to undermine organizations in other parts of the world, all of a sudden it kind of clicked, like, wait, but what if we did this in the United States? Problem was that we were working on military contracts. You can't just easily, it would be noticed if you just kind of acquired that you know, outright. So Cambridge Analytica got set up as a, effectively a front for SCL Group. And um, you know, very quickly, the work that we were looking at um, originally for defensive purposes got flipped. And so people um, you know, would be identified online through profiling algorithms. And this is where the data was used and helpful to profile people. When you think about all of the things that you put online, you literally reveal who you are. Um, and those people would be pulled into um, an informational environment. And these are and the, the, the people who were targeted in the United States at the first instance were usually the same kinds of people that you would target in other places, people who were more prone to conspiratorial thinking, paranoid ideation, more neurotic, more narcissist, because these are, these are the low-hanging fruit. And they would be invited to groups or pages or forums. And when they joined those forums, all of a sudden, they would start getting messages. Oh, hey, have you seen this? Check out this link. They start chatting with people who may or may not have been real. And when some of these groups 
particularly localized groups from different counties in the United States, would get to a certain sort of threshold, a couple thousand even, if only sort of 10% of people actually showed up to an event, you could get a couple hundred people crammed into a room. And so events would be set up, people would come, and all of a sudden, this sort of digital fantasy that people had been sort of playing with or dabbling with, all of a sudden they would come to a coffee shop and you put 50 people, in, it's not a lot of people, but you put 50 people in a coffee shop and it seems like everyone's there. And so you're not just targeting ads, you're actually creating a political an alternative political reality. The alt-right is an insurgency. And so if you're going to build an insurgency, this is how you do it, right? You have to put people together. The same kinds of techniques that you would use to undermine a narcotics operation, right? You start small, tiny little groups of pee pockets all throughout the organization so they don't get noticed. And they start building relationships with one another. And once they uh, have strong relationships with each other, you then start to put, pool them together. And at some point, you get a critical mass, and it becomes an organic thing. And that's what happened in the United States. Um, and a lot of the people that they ended up you know, targeting were, uh, didn't, didn't realize that that's what was happening to them. I don't necessarily blame them. I think they were victimized in a way. Um, but when I, when I started looking at what they were doing, particularly with some of the um, uh, race realism uh, narratives and experiments that they were doing, you know, when you'd get uh, people into um, panels and you'd ask them questions like, you know, imagine an America where you can't pronounce anyone's name. You know, and starting to get people to go down a, you know, a path, or pulling people's photos of, of relatives and, and, and pairing them with a picture of a, of a black man and saying, would you, would you feel comfortable with this? And if they say yes, then prompting them and saying, do you feel like you have to say that? Really starting to push people down a path of thinking. Um, you know, and when I saw that, I was just, this is not what I signed up for. I, but the problem is when, when you have a billionaire that goes and essentially buys out a company, you can't really complain to HR about, <laughs> you know, yeah. what's happening. They crossed a lot of other lines too, though, right? Like in right? Cambridge Analytica crossed a lot of other lines too. I saw um, in the Channel 4 sting Alexander Nix, the CEO, suggest to the undercover reporter that the um, firm could hypothetically create sex scandals or... Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, it, was a, it was a full-service propaganda firm. I mean, <laughs> it, it was end-to-end. -end, you, you, you name it, it would probably do it. Um, and, you know, it was not unusual uh, to, you know, in, employ hackers. Uh, it was not unusual to set up politicians with prostitutes or uh, fake scenarios where it looked like they're being bribed. Um, you know, the... the the, 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 the firm would do a lot of things. Um, some of it would be for military clients. Um, you know, some of it would be for private clients who wanted to capitalize on the resources of generally the global south. One of the things that I kind of learned about how SCL and then later CA operated was that like colonialism still very much exists. It just exists in a new form. It's more discreet and it's more digital. Um, but you would get you know, the same kinds of players from, you know, Britain or America going into countries that are resource-rich that they used to run. And instead of just administering it with a colonial administrator, they would just undermine the democracy of that country so that they could continue to exploit resources. So after all the inquiries that were set up as a result of your whistleblowing and all the outrage and all the discussion, 
do you think in the last year, it's year and a half, uh, things have changed in a concrete way? Has Facebook changed? Have regulations changed? Obviously, awareness has changed, and that's not yeah. an insignificant thing. But in concrete terms, what's changed? I mean, um, I guess, you know, Facebook received the largest fine that a technology company has ever received, $5 billion US, plus another $100 million from the SEC. Um, share value went up because what investors realized was that the tech sector, that the, the governments really don't know how to rein in the tech sector. And if, if, the, if the fine for something as blatantly wrong as Cambridge Analytica is $5 billion, which is a small portion of their annual profit, well, you can get away with pretty much anything. So weirdly, by revealing that their shares increased later on, yeah. I mean, it resulted initially in the largest share drop in you know, corporate history uh, in a single day, but they recovered. And, and you know, are they going to change? Well, they didn't really feel the pain enough. Um, and and I, 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 I sort of look at you know, the history of unregulated industries, and they, they typically need to go really wrong before things happen. You look at medicine, you, the thalidomide crisis that happened, where you had to have you know, really terrible births of, and, and, and you know, huge numbers of, of disabled babies in, in order to establish that actually pharmaceutical companies should prove that what they're creating is safe. And I don't know if we've reached that point yet. Um, and I don't know what it will take for regulators to, to really start taking robust action and going, you know what, the internet affects so many aspects of our lives. It, you know, it, it's not just you know, Russian interference and all that. You know, it's like your mental health, how much sleep you get, you know, like your, 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 your well-being, economic productivity, right? And um, that th 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 if, we, if we regulate every other sector for safety, why do we not have regulations for consumer safety when it comes to technology? Mm. Just because it's software doesn't mean it doesn't affect us. But, but to date, yeah. not a lot of concrete change. I, I have had lots of conversations with members of Congress, members of Parliament, the EU. Um, I, I haven't seen anything that really inspires inspires me yet, okay. frankly. Um, but I think it's partly because we are still stuck in the language that Silicon Valley uses. We still think of it as services rather than architectures. We still talk about terms and conditions consent, but we'll get anyway, I ramble on. No, no, you haven't. It's very interesting. Andre, in the books you've co-authored with Irina, you look at how the internet's been this amazing tool for those in Russia who are challenging the authorities and also this incredible tool for the state to maintain power, to crush dissent. I wanted to get us to start by getting a kind of picture of how the Russian authorities think about the internet, how they've used control of information to suppress internal dissent, how good they are at it, and whether it is actually mass surveillance in the way that Chris has been talking about it, or whether it's still something different in Russia. Well, let me start that. The Russian idea of the internet and the threats posed by the internet is, uh, to much extent, ex defined by the feeling of uh, insecurity and paranoia, uh, because uh, there are some crucial questions uh, Vladimir Putin never 
found a real answer. For instance, why the Soviet Union collapsed. And uh, he got this feeling, as many of his colleagues from the KGB, that, look, you have a very strange situation. You have the most powerful, uh, most intelligent uh, security service in the world, and all of a sudden just collapsed. Uh, and uh, the KGB didn't help to save uh, the Soviet communist regime. So they came up with the idea that probably it had something to do with uh, control of information. And uh, the 1990s, especially the wars in Chechnya, uh, they well, gave them some ideas about how it could be done by the West. And uh, when uh, Putin started the Second Chechen War in 1999, uh, he immediately found an explanation to everybody, especially for the Russian people, why the first war uh, was lost, uh, and uh, that's true, uh, the Russian army lost the first Chechen war, and why he should win. And he said that actually it was because information uh, well, circulated uh, completely independently, and he blamed a journalist. He said, we lost uh, the war because of journalists, because of the media. Back then, he didn't think of the internet, fortunately for everybody. And uh, he almost immediately, already in 2000, he introduced a very strange idea of information security. He said that we need to control content online. And back then, it was about, mostly about media, television, and, uh, and, uh, and print media. And uh, as a journalist, I, well, we, we all understood it very quickly. But thanks God, for many years, almost for 10 years, he didn't believe in, uh, in the idea of the internet. And the internet business uh, developed very successfully, very well, independently from the government, uh, because Putin was not a big user of the internet for many, many years. But still, he had his security services with a very totalitarian ideas about how to control information. But they were not given enough funding. Uh, they were not technically very sophisticated. At the same time, simultaneously, we got the private sector. We got lots of companies, lots of IT companies, uh, really good IT companies. And uh, the interesting thing that um, Russia produced very quickly really great IT sector. Uh, not only IT companies, but hackers. One of the reasons of uh, this is that the Soviet Union back then enjoyed the biggest community of engineers. And we got so many engineers for one reason, because the Soviet Union had the biggest, one of the biggest, uh, military-industrial complex. And to solve the needs of the military, you need a lot of engineers. So Stalin actually established a lot of uh, technical schools and produced thousands and thousands of engineers. And they were really good at technology. But they lacked one thing, any ethical standards. Uh, they were taught to... Uh, that's true. Uh, they were never given any ethical courses. Uh, they were just given a very basic, narrow idea that you need to be a servant of the state to produce more technology, and that was it. What happened next is that around 2011, 2012, uh, Putin faced the biggest political challenge to his regime. We got protests on Moscow streets, uh, dozens, and actually one day it was about 100,000 people on streets protesting against him, and he got scared, because that was the year of the Arab Spring. So he came up with the idea that he probably uh, misplaced the threat. It was not any more television or foreign journalists. Probably it was social media developed by the West to undermine his regime. And he wanted to find a way how to put social media under control. His problem was that the, well, the FSB, the Russian security services, were not really good at it, so he asked it, 
and got help from the private sector. And we had what we, we, we are seeing right now is we have this cooperation between private Russian IT sector and Russian government. And uh, as a result, we got very extensive and very updated system of surveillance. Uh, we got a very good system of, not very good, but quite good and very brutal system of internet filtering. Uh, we got lots of trolls, lots of technologies which helps trolls to spread their message. Uh, so far, I would say that inside the country is not extremely successful because the internet was designed to spread information or disinformation, not to contain information. And in the country, Putin is mostly interested in containing information. But of course, he got means and tools to spread disinformation, and he used it to uh, great effect first in Ukraine, then in the United States, and in Europe. Yeah. Um, I think he would like the big tech platforms to put all their servers into Russia because there's a back, I know the Russian um, security has a backdoor into pretty much all the telecommunications and internet traffic in Russia. So what would be the impact for, for Russian citizens if the tech companies did put their service? Yeah, he got this idea in 2014 when we got Snowden in Russia and uh, some um, Russian officials they came up with a brilliant idea to exploit Snowden revelations saying, look, because Snowden uh, exposed the Western uh, espionage on social networks. We need to protect personal data of Russian citizens, forcing Facebook and Google and Twitter to move their servers uh, with Russian data, Russian citizens' data, into Russia, under pretext of protecting Russian citizens' data. And uh, some people accepted this idea, but I mean in Russia, but not many. And in fact, we get an online campaign uh, asking Facebook not to move their uh, service to Russia, and lots of people signed on. And uh, so far, uh, these global tech companies, they um, resist, and have been resistant for almost four years. But if they decide to comply, what we got, uh, we have a legislation that complies and requires everybody in Russia, I mean, telecommunication companies, service providers, including social media, uh, to provide backdoors for the Russian security services, completely unchecked. The idea is just to establish a special equipment to uh, lay a cable to the local offices of the security services, to give them the key and lock the door, literally. It's, uh, it's usually, it happens in a big, large room. You, you, uh, if you work for this uh, for, for internet service provider, you are required to provide all equipment to pay for everything, and then to lock the door and give the key to the FSB. And walk away. And, Yes, exactly. Okay, so then we get to the uh, US presidential election. We know now that at the same time as Cambridge Analytica was working to spread falsehoods, Russian hackers, a couple of groups of them, I think you say in your book, breached the servers of the Democratic National Committee, the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, stole emails which were made public via WikiLeaks. We know Russia had troll factories, people paid to create and disseminate, disseminate divisive ads. What I'm not clear about is what the aim was. Do you think that Vladimir Putin wanted to get Trump elected? Was that his aim or was it something a bit more confused? Because it, it, it sort of backfired, really. I mean, Trump did get elected, but the whole um, revelation backfired on Russia, didn't yeah, it? To be honest, it ends really bad for, for the Kremlin. And uh, but actually, when you describe people you profiled, uh, with conspiratorial thinking, I was struck that you actually you described some people in the Kremlin. So these, these guys, they really, they have, 
Uh, we believe in some conspiracy theories. Uh, we believe in the deep state. It's not only propaganda. We really believe that everything about the US election was predetermined by the establishment. So nobody in the Kremlin actually believed they could uh, elect Trump. But what we wanted to do, we wanted to harm and hurt uh, Hillary Clinton because she was seen as um, a secretary of, uh, of state secretary uh, back in the time of 2011-2012 uh, uh, protests as a kind of mastermind of the protest in Moscow. And uh, a very significant uh, thing happened in, uh, in the spring of 2016. Uh, we got Panama Papers published. And for some strange reasons, uh, uh, the Russian intelligence agencies reported to the Kremlin that the whole operation of Panama Papers, they called it an operation, was inspired by Hillary Clinton. Why? I, I, I have no idea why they decided that. And Putin, because his personal friend was, um, was attacked, this infamous cellist, mm. who happens to be so rich that everybody gets it, that probably he's uh, in charge of uh, Putin's money. And he was pissed off personally, and he wanted to strike back. So it was revenge? Yes. It was very emotional uh, for him, and he wanted to strike back, and no matter what. So they just decided to use all information they quietly uh, collected all 2015 and past, uh, part, part of 2016 and used against uh, Clinton. So, Chris, if we stick with the, the sort of the, the narrow casting of the debate around the subverting of elections for now, do you see uh, ways that 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 could be fixed, regulated? Do you see ways that we could sort of reclaim regulatory p power over democracy and stop this kind of behaviour? Yeah, I think that, um, just to add to what you were saying, one of the sort of interesting things about um, troll, Russian troll factories is you actually had um, Cambridge Analytica personnel in St. Petersburg, and they were working on uh, Russian state-funded research on uh, profiling troll behavior online, mm -hmm. uh, and in fact, did presentations in Russia about it. Um, so you know, this is there were it wasn't just internal. There was all kinds of things happening all over the place um, related to that. Uh, to your question, um, I think one of the things that uh, to begin with would be that would be really helpful is for legislators and people more generally to think about the internet differently. Um, so we often, you know, if you look at the language that Silicon Valley uses, um, you know, they talk about data as like this thing, like data exhaust or digital breadcrumbs, as if it's like this waste product that they're just cleaning up, right? Or, you know, the, 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 the people that they profile are users, not used, they're users, right? You know, or they're creating like communities or ecosystems rather than surveillance networks, right? Um, <laughs> So first of all, you know, but the, I think the most important word that I would like to banish, right, is service. Because if you look at the job titles in Silicon Valley, right, the top job titles in Silicon Valley are not, you know, like customer relations specialist, you know, or, you know, service design manager, right? It's engineer and architect, right? And what the internet is, and what social media is, is an architecture. Um, and when we start thinking about it as an architecture, and we look at how we 
treat and regulate architectures and products of engineering in other sectors, all of a sudden the defenses and narratives that Silicon Valley produces seem like bullshit, right? So if you, if you, if you imagine somebody who's built a building that's like a maze, right, and doesn't have any exits, and you know, it tries to make you like go through the maze in a particular way and you can't leave and you don't know where you are. But the guy goes, oh, but I've put a small novella's worth of terms and conditions outside. And when you walk in, the door says that you accept this book. <laughs> and by the way, the door locks after you've entered and we won't show you how to leave and we won't show you what we're doing and there's no fire exits, and if the building lights on fire, well, you agreed to the terms and conditions outside, right? It'd be like bullshit, right? And so the, when we look at products of engineering, airplanes, you know, with the exception of the, you know, Supermax, whatever, that, that was actually because they didn't follow the inspections procedures. But if you look at, you know, planes, cars, if you look at drugs, which is a product of chemical engineering, you look at food safety standards, we put consumer safety first, we use the precautionary principle, and we require industries to prove before going into market that what they've created is safe for people to use. And there is no amount of terms and conditions that you can sign when you get on an airplane or buy a car or go to the grocery store about safety, right? And about how things are used, right? You, you have statutory rights. And when it, but for some reason, when it comes to the internet or when it comes to software, which mediates every aspect of our lives, um, there are effectively no rules. And so I think that really, if we, if we did a couple things, first of all, I think we need to start looking at what are design standards and, you know, do we need a building code for the internet, A. B, the, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of talk or focus about companies like Facebook or Google or whatever, but companies are made up of people. And so when you look at um, civil engineers or you look at electrical engineers, whatever kind of engineer, or an architect, they have professional conduct standards. They have to follow a code of conduct, they have to prove that they're competent, and they have to give due consideration to the people who are using their products. Um, and if they don't, uh, you know, they can be banished from their profession. And so I think, secondly, actually putting skin in the game for engineers who build these things and to, to say, you have to give due consideration to the people who are using these things. And if you don't, you can't practice as an engineer. But, but we didn't do this. We didn't put in that code of conduct. And now we're looking at whether it can be retrofitted. And in the case of Cambridge Analytica, we still don't know what data they collected. They well, face, Facebook, Facebook, does. Facebook knows a Facebook lot of things, yes, and, 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 and because they don't have to, they just don't release a lot well, of exactly. information. Exactly. So we're trying to retrofit um, regulation. Yes, but the, dif the, difference, the difference is that it, it is, you know, you look at the narrative of Silicon Valley about how they constantly talk about self-disruption, change, you know, mo you know, move fast and break things. You know, in this case, they broke democracy, but move fast and break things. Well, if they can move fast and break things, surely they should be able to move fast and fix things. And if they can't, then that narrative is bullshit, right? But I, 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 I think that, you know, there are a lot of smart people in Facebook or in Google or in Amazon or you name it, all these big, these big companies, there's a lot of smart people who, if they were told to prioritize safety, 
than they would. But there has to be some kind of you know, legal mechanism to force companies to do it. And there's a, there's a lot of different things. When you look at the auto industry and you know, in the United States, why uh, seatbelts became a mandatory thing and airbags and all this kind of stuff. The auto industry ages ago were going, no, this is, this is going to scare people. It's not needed. Consumer choice. They can opt into it if they want to. It's going to slow innovation. It's cumbersome rules. And it was only until like insurance companies who were tired of paying for mangled bodies of people from car accidents that counter lobbied. Um, and it was, and, 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 and there, there was, because there was a financial cost to another company, then all of a sudden there was like a countermeasure. Mm. And so if we, for example, required uh, insurance for data breaches, right, and where, where we then put a cost on where you, if your data is breached, you are entitled to a statutory amount of money by virtue of your data being misused. And if all of a sudden the insurance company had to pay for that, they would be in the boardroom right away saying, get your shit together or we're not going to insure you. What do you think, Andre? Do you think we can... I, I completely agree. I think it's a really good point. The only problem here is that we tend to be focused on Silicon Valley, as we think, because we be mostly talking about Facebook and Google and Twitter and Amazon. So we tend to think that most of these things are produced in the United States. And it's sort of, sort of understand how to try, at least, to, to start thinking how to regulate these things. Unfortunately, we live in a really globalized world. And lots of countries are out of the United States, produce a lot of IT uh, technologies we use, even in the West. And we did research some years ago about the exports of uh, surveillance technologies to other countries. And to our astonishment, we found out that lots of this stuff is produced not only in the UK or Italy, or Israel or the United States, but also in Russia and China. And sometimes it's, um, it might end up with a really difficult things. For instance, just to give you one example, Mexico, Mexican government some years ago decided that we need to fight, uh, to take it seriously, to, to fight uh, the extortion business when you have people kidnapped on the streets uh, and all that. And they decided, they got some funding from US government and they decided, and they started looking for a good company, for a good technology of uh, speaker recognition. Because usually the calls, uh, uh, you got, you got a, somebody uh, in your family kidnapped, and then you get a call uh, with, uh, with, with, uh, with, extortion, uh, with the information that you need to give some money. So we wanted to identify these people by their voices. And uh, they ended up in Russia, and they invited a Russian company to provide a technology. And these guys, uh, they not only provided technology, but they provided the technical expertise how to use it. And just because they have this engineer mindset, they said, look, to make it really work, you need to collect as much data as possible. So ideally, it would be great to collect all uh, voice samples of all Mexican the, citizens. The whole of Mexico. Exactly. So what they, they came up, up with the idea that Actually, if, for instance, you have a, a young guy um, trying to get a driving license, it would be great to force him to give up his voice sample. And that's exactly what happened now. In many states of Mexico now, it's obligatory to give up your voice sample. And when I spoke to, uh, to these guys, to the Russian guys and this company, like, are you happy how your uh, technology might be used? For instance, you can identify not only people, not only criminals, but journalists and activists. They said, look, it's not our problem. 
we provide the technology. It's, it's better works in this totalitarian manner, because if you have all the amounts of data, it just, well, uh, the amount of, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's really effective, and we are happy with that. And after that, after this success, we got, uh, we, this company got a lot of uh, requests from other countries in South America uh, with uh, questionable uh, ideas about internet freedoms and uh, any kind of freedoms. And uh, we know that uh, they started buying this kind of technologies. So how to regulate these companies? How to regulate global market of uh, surveillance and IT technologies? It's, it's, it's actually um, how they, <clears throat> how the U.S. military um, finds targets in particular regions of, like, for example, Pakistan, uh, why, uh, to, as drone targets. Because uh, even if you, cause you need, if you can access samples of voices uh, in, a, in a phone network, even if you're using a burner phone, you can be identified really quickly. So if you know that you have a target somewhere in this region, and you start tapping into voice data in that, and you, and you get a match, you then know which burner phone they're using, and you can go and shoot them. So in a way, though, what we're discussing today is even, even broader than what we've touched on so far. So Shana Zuboff, in her book, Surveillance Capitalism, argues that eventually the data that we all give up every day, all day, and the art artificial intelligence devices that we're increasingly buying and bringing into our homes, eventually, this will take us down a path where it kind of erodes our ability to make our own decisions. It will sort of eat away at our autonomy. I would like each of you to sort of explain what she means, because I figure there's probably a lot of people in the audience who think, well, to start with, those devices, they're really convenient and good. That's why we're buying them. And if we don't do anything wrong, and if we're careful with our privacy settings, then surely it's not so bad. Can you, I mean, can you start, Chris, like, do you accept her argument? Do you think, do you accept her point? So I think that she makes a very valid point. Um, so if you look at, uh, you know, where we're heading, you know, we, data is valuable because it's who you are. It's a representation of who you are. Um, and if, if you imagine 5, 10, 20 years down the road where we start integrating uh, AI into all of the devices and in physical environments around us, right? So all of a sudden, you know, you go into your living room and your living room is aware of your presence and thinks about you and reports information back to some company. Or it talks to the refrigerator, the refrigerator talks to the TV, the TV talks to your toothbrush, that talks to the toilet, that talks to your car, that talks to the road, that talks to your office, right? And then they all have a conversation about you, <laughs> right? And so if we think about like omnipresent surveillance, but it's not just surveillance where it goes to like a person. It's, it's, it's where we're creating not only like aware or, or about to or start a journey of creating aware spaces, but motivated spaces where, the, where your living room has an agenda, right? It's, I'm not joking. Like it's, it's, it's where you sit and so your what's, behavior. What's my living room's agenda? My living <laughs> So, so to give you, you know, a tangible example that could be just a, a very mundane example, right? So, you know, imagine, um, you know, you, 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 I'll give you, okay, so if somebody, if you've got um, uh, facial recognition everywhere, you know, in future land, right? And that gets hooked up to insurance companies, it gets hooked up to security companies, risk assessment companies, right? And let's say you've got a teenager and he goes and does something stupid and he steals something, 
right? And then, you know, he goes through some judicial process and whatever. He goes to juvie or gets slapped on a wrist, gets fined, whatever. But at that point, the physical space remembers him, right? And remembers his face, and he's now profiled. And so let's say he finishes, you know, his six months in juvie or whatever, uh, and he comes out, and the city won't let him in anymore because the doors become the doorman, right? And if you're a grocery store and you go, oh, well, my objective AI says that this person's a higher risk of theft, so we're just not going to let him in. And all of a sudden, you create, like, quite literally structural barriers, right? Where, you know, or how your behavior at one point in your life determines how the world sees you forever, right? That's what profiling is. There's a, there's a fine line between trying to profile you to represent you and that representation then actually creating who you are and how the world sees you. And that's a real problem um, because that could, you know, if, if the environment constantly watches you and thinks about you, on certain conditions and judgments, and it makes judgments on your behavior and seeks to slowly alter it over time, where it can see you, but you can't see it, and you don't know what is and isn't mediated and what you're seeing and why you're seeing it, you know, that really risks you know, a loss of agency because you're making decisions on options that have been given to you. Mm. And I really worry for humanity because it, that situation, we have evolved as a species with a passive environment, right? Nature affects us, but it doesn't, necessarily, it doesn't affect us in a motivated way, you know, unless you're very religious. It doesn't affect us in a, in a motivated way. But all of a sudden, if we create a built environment around us that is motivated, and it, it can see us, and we can't see it, and it makes judgments, and it seeks to change things and punish us or reward us. I mean, that sounds like divine. I mean, if you think about it, are, do we end up creating our own master? And if you create a city or a world or a country that thinks about you and knows where you are and always is making judgments about you and making choices for you, how do you escape that? And what does it mean to be a human in that kind of environment where you, where you live inside of something that's thinking? Mm. And I think that's quite profound. And, and I think that there's a lot of things that could go wrong with that. So Zuboff also quotes the chief data scientist of a Silicon Valley company who said, the goal of everything we do is to change people's actual behavior at scale. When people use our app, we can capture their behaviors, identify good and bad behaviors, and develop ways to reward the good and punish the bad. We can test how actionable our cues are for them and how profitable for us. Andre, that sounds quite a lot like the Chinese social credit system. I totally agree. I think that's, to be honest, uh, there were so many discussions about what could be done, especially after this uh, scandal with, uh, with the Russian million uh, and US election uh, on the end of customers, of ordinary people. And there were some ideas about some literacy, internet literacy classes in schools, um, but we need to educate people how to react to things online. To be honest, I'm very pessimistic. I think we, we cannot do that because uh, propaganda is designed to use your emotions. So when you have a crisis, like you kind of catastrophe or the war started, if you send a very emotional message, and we got this a lot during the uh, war between Russia and Ukraine, when we have pictures of 
ostensibly crucified children, you respond emotionally to that. It's very difficult to restrain yourself. So we are pretty hopeless. And even, even if you say you, uh, you teach somebody to completely forget about social media and use them only 20 minutes a day, still they are victims of um, all kind of things you describe it, of uh, Internet of Things. Uh, you go to the shop, you buy something, and you it's can't... the environment. How do you Absolutely, escape it? you can't escape it. So the only possible way is to try to target people who produce these things. And I am, to be honest, I'm a bit skeptical because in my country, my country provides an example, an extreme example, how it could look when you give engineers unrestricted, unrestrained powers to do things. In the 60s, back in the Soviet Union, there was a famous debate in our society. Uh, um, kind of dispute between physicists and lyrics. The idea was to try to prove who are better for the society. Lyrics, meaning humanities people, or physicists, meaning technical intelligentsia who produce things. And in, in the Russian Soviet societies, technical guys won. Because they explained it to everybody, look, these guys, poets, they know nothing about the order. They know nothing about how to build a bridge. If they would be asked to build a bridge, they would uh, get into a, a dispute, there would be problems, and they would produce chaos. And we produce an order. And when the Soviet Union collapsed in the 1990s, uh, I had a lot of these conversations with engineers. They, by definition, they, they were thinking that democracy is a chaos. And if you want to build uh, from the engineer point of view, uh, of point, uh, point of view, if you want to build a safe and ef an efficient environment, you need to build something based on the idea of order, of lack of any kind of dispute or, or, or options, essentially a prison. So you need to do something with that, with that kind of mentality. Of course, I'm giving you a very extreme example of the country with post, very recent post-totalitarian uh, mindset, but it's, uh, it could serve as a very warning example. So we need to think how to, uh, uh, how to fix the education of, uh, of people who would join uh, Silicon Valley companies tomorrow, day after tomorrow, because they should understand. They we get these ideas about what constitutes a safe behavior, or what constitutes a dangerous and risky uh, behavior. Where we get these ideas from? Yeah. And Chris, do you think it's reasonable to compare um, the uh, private enterprise surveillance that we see with the Chinese social surveillance? Yeah, I, I don't. I, I think that, that, that when you look at um, the way technology companies are sort of evolving, it's the one sector, we talk about tech, right? But it, it's the one sector that actually sort of pervades all other sectors, right? The way tech works is it goes into sector A, B, C, D, E, and then disrupts it and then takes it over. Um, and when you've got, you know, a couple companies that can not only that not only profile you and control information around you, but also like touch on every sort of aspect of your life, whether it's your HR systems or whether it's your self-driving car or whether it's your grocery store. Like literally, like Amazon bought Whole Foods. Like it's literally, literally every aspect of your life all of a sudden touches a tech company. And 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 if the when when you look at how. Um, you know, uh, Facebook, for example, talks about, you know, dealing with problems. You know, Mark Zuckerberg suggested that they need, you know, now an independent arbitration panel for disputes, you know, where there's a certain, co an, 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 a certain code of principles that and that you can system? appeal. And I'm like, this sounds like a court. You're creating a court system. 
you know, and at some point, you know, my fear is that if you've got a company that touches so many aspects of the economy and your life, yes, it's in the private sector, but at some point, what's the difference? You know, if it, if, if, if it touches every aspect of your life, what is the difference? When it comes to the material and substantive freedoms that you have, just because it's not a state, and what makes it worse, in my view, compared to, you know, if it was in the, you know, a, a democratic country is like you have literally no representation you have no rights you have no due process i know this uh, as somebody who's banned from all of these platforms you know they could they could ban me i blew the whistle and the first reaction of facebook is fuck that guy ban him right <laughs> and there was a, even there was emergency debates in the british parliament about like literally the fact is like wait a second you can literally like delete someone off of the internet you know, I learned personally how pervasive Facebook was when my Facebook account got eliminated and a lot of my you know, life just disappeared off of the internet. Um, and if, you, if, if, if there is no appeal, there's no due process, you have no rights, uh, that's scary. And, and I don't see the difference. You know, we point the finger at China and go, oh my God, look at what they're doing. And so we're literally building it here. So I'm going to ask one last question of each of our panelists, and after that, it'll be your turn to ask questions. So if you've got a question, it's time to start moving to those four microphones in preparation. So this is the Antidote Festival. We're supposed to be looking for sort of at least ideas about how things can, can get better. Edwina um, started with, you know, thinking about, looking at how people can take action. So if we were to be... Uh, asking, agitating, pushing for a reform, a change to, um, to, to start to solve some of the problems we've discussed today, what would it be? Andre. Uh, it's pretty, it might be a bit boring, but I think that, um, of course, we can try to split these companies. That's kind of uh, decision everybody has in mind. Uh, we had with uh, FNT and T at that could well, maybe uh, seem like a solution, but uh, to be honest, I think the only uh, potentially possible option is to try to install some um, public councils uh, within these companies. Uh, councils? Uh, councils, right. There are some boards of people. And actually, look, we still have around us people who created the Internet, and they probably have the highest authority in terms of... Uh, how things should be done. Uh, they build uh, uh, the environment we live now. They are not really happy with what they've done. Uh, and they, they, are, they are here, uh, and they, they are eager to help. The problem is that some of these companies, like Google and Facebook, they try to play with the idea of uh, hiring an advisor on uh, freedom of expression, these kind of things. But they never give these people any powers inside to look into the data and to look into the way these companies operate. So probably if we can uh, push these companies uh, using the government and um, global community to create these things, boards or councils, and to give them powers, inside these companies, but and they have councils. Yes, and that could help more probably. Chris, so you, you, you're looking at um, ethical AI in your new job, right? You obviously yeah. think it's possible. I think that, so if we look at um, what some of the 
problematic things. You know, if you look at, um, you know, Google reads your email. If you use Gmail, it reads all of your email. But if you had the postal service opening up the letters and reading everything, your, 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 your correspondence, that's a crime in most countries, right? Um, the telecoms companies in most countries can't wiretap you without a court order, but yet your instant messaging can be if you use certain platforms. So th there are things that, for some reason, because it's called tech, that is manifestly unacceptable in other areas of our lives, they're allowed to do. Um, so I think that if we look at how people engage with the, the, the platforms and how necessary and integrated they've become in people's lives, they've become, they've taken on a status that is similar, although not exactly the same, but similar to a utility, right? Uh, and when you have a water company, when you've got an electrical company, when you've got, you know, a telecoms company or the postal service, right, there are certain rules that they have to follow because you've got a natural monopoly, um, you know, and people depend on the service that you provide, and you have a higher uh, standard of care that you have to take when it comes to your customers. You're still allowed to make money, but you know, telecoms companies make money, but they can't necessarily blackmail you with like tape recordings, for example. Um, so I think looking at is there some kind of digital equivalent status, I mean, you, there's slight differences between tempor you know, the water company and Facebook, but is there a type of status that we can impart on companies that become so big by the nature of their scale, they're too important to leave as a, as a purely private company, A. B, uh, I think that we really need to look at the profession of software engineering and, and architecture and ask ourselves, does this profession need to be regulated in the same way that all other engineers are regulated? And does that mean safety standards and codes of conduct, right? I, and, and thirdly, I think that we need more international cooperation. The problem with the internet is the, pro the same problem that you get with climate change. It's a global thing, and it's something that we're inside of. So we need international cooperation. You're starting to see a little bit of that. And competition regulators. Out of, out, of, yeah. out of Britain, right? You've got um, 16 different legislators, uh, the equivalent of the, the, the technology committees and different legislators cooperating on trying to investigate the global tech sector. I, I think we need more of that. Um, but I, I don't think that we can... Uh, unfortunately, I don't think, for example, Australia is going to come up with the solution because ultimately you need lots, and that's not to slag off Australia, that's literally no, no, just, it's be that, you know, I'm from Canada, Canada's not going to yeah. either, it's just the, the nature of being a small or mid-sized country, we've got to band together and create interna an international regulatory framework. Okay, it's time for some questions uh, from the floor. Could I just say from the outset that the thing we're looking for is questions. Um, <laughs> can we start over here? Both uh, sorry. Oh, yes, we can hear you now. Uh, my question is to both of you. Could you say something about the cleaning of data and the power of those who are doing the cleaning and who monitors them? The, the, what do you mean by cleaning of data? Sorry. Sorry, the question, we, we've got a question. What do you mean by cleaning? Those, those, data, those data scientists who... Uh, deal with the raw data yeah. and then provide the data. They've cleaned it up in the meantime. 
but sorry, and your question is about... What, what sort of powers do they have to do? Who monitors them? Oh, I see. What ethical Okay, so I think by uh, cleaning, you mean uh, processing or modeling. So um, when you think about um, data, to me, data is a bit like uh, uranium or some kind of radioactive element in the sense that one, one atom is not that powerful. If you put a lot together, you can create something that's powerful. So if you think about... Um, you know, your music playlist, okay, so, so what, we've got that. But then if we also look at where you go shopping and what you watch and who you talk to and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, once we start putting all of that together and creating a more holistic view of yourself, uh, then we know who you are and we can build algorithms that can anticipate within a range of accuracy how you're going to interact with things. Um, foretelling your behavior is a really powerful thing. Um, so in terms of, I guess if the question is how powerful is it, it's quite powerful. Um, this is why Facebook makes tons of money. <laughs> All right, let's take a question from microphone one. Hi there. Uh, my question is specifically about uh, the subversion of democracy through digital means. Um, one of the theories of the... Uh, collapse of the Soviet Union is that it was due to the arms race and that uh, the West had far greater economic resources. So in an arms race, although we didn't know it at the time, the, when we look back at it, we realized that the Soviet Union um, had far fewer resources. So one of the reasons for the collapse, arguably, is uh, the, the, the lack of resources. Um, do, do Chris and Andre think that there could be a reason for optimism uh, in that the the supporters of democracy may have a greater economic strength uh, than those who would want to subvert democracy in the current world. Andre, do you understand? Uh, yeah, I think so. Uh, for one reason uh, is that the Soviet Union was really bad with technology and telecommunications. Uh, I had a very hilarious um, conversation with uh, some KGB veterans who told me that they all their life, and these guys were in charge of uh, uh, wiretapping uh, phones of Moscovites, and they told me they, uh, in the 70s and 60s and 80s, they were envious of Stasi because uh, telecommunications built in East Germany were far greater than in, in Moscow, and that's why Stasi had, had visibility to uh, wiretap and uh, thousands and thousands of, uh, of phone calls simultaneously. And uh, in Moscow, just before the collapse of the Soviet Union, the number was something about 700 phone calls simultaneously, just because the telecommunications were really, really bad. And uh, because authoritarian countries, by definition, they have fear of information used inside of the countries. They try to slow down the technical progress. And we got this in Russia too. Uh, for instance, just a few years ago, uh, Vladimir Putin adopted a new information technology, uh, information security doctrine. And his, actually, this document says one thing. But before introducing new technologies, telecommunications companies should go to the FSB and ask them whether they are fine with these new technologies. And we got this in the Soviet Union. We already got when KGB dictated everybody how to uh, develop technologies. That's, that's why the Soviet Union was so bad with technologies. And we already got this slowdown. For instance, there are great problems in Russia right now with introducing of uh, 5G. 
because the Russian security services are not happy with this new technology. So it looks like in democratic countries, at least you have there are some problems, of course, and consequences when you have this free flow of development, of technological development. But for authoritarian countries, technological challenge is uh, by far maybe the most formidable challenge. They just do not know how to cope. They always try to catch up. They always a bit. Um, they are too lazy, too stupid, too bureaucratic to catch up with all these new technologies. So in as a result, they try to slow down the whole technological progress, so they lose. Oh, can I, can I just add sure. to that? So I think just because he asked about, you know, if, do the, the, can, can pe people who support democracy sort of overwhelm and, you know, w you know, win this sort of debate? I think the problem is that what we're seeing is a, 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 a uh, mutation of what democracy is. Um, when we think about the traditional notion of democracy, it's like, you know, a guy going into the town square, or a girl going into the town square, and, you know, you know saying their piece, uh, and an audience forms, and maybe there's some journalists there, or there's, you know, somebody with a different view, and everybody kind of agrees on like what was said, who said it, and you know, if Joe, who knows a thing or two, says, no, that's bullshit, people can hear that. And that's a debate, and that's sort of how we think about and conceptualize democracy. What's happening online is that instead of th that person being a person, that person can become invisible, that person can go and whisper into people's ears, and it can whisper something into this person's ear versus that person's ear versus that person's ear, and they don't even know necessarily that they're an audience, right? And so all of a sudden, you know, if people start engaging with different realities, right, how can you have a functioning democracy even? How, what is it to love democracy or support democracy if you, you no longer can like, understand any kind of common sense? If there's no common, if there's no common understanding understand. of reality. And what we're seeing is uh, online, I think, is really dangerous. I think we are seeing the resegregation of society. It's just rather than a, a physical segregation or a racial segregation, we are seeing a cognitive se segregation. Uh, of people, you know, Facebook talks about itself as a community, it's a gated community, and it's a lot of gated communities, and people see different things and experience different things. And that is, I think, a really powerful and dangerous thing, and we're seeing it in the United States right now. When you, when you look at debates in the United States, it's no, so, ma so many things are now about, like, it, was that real or not? Mm. Is that true or not? Like, there's no common under understanding anymore of, like, what's true. We've got alternative facts, right? And we don't, but you know. And so, uh, you know, I, 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 my concern is how do you challenge an architecture that is segregating society and changing people's perceptions of what is real and not real? Like how, it's like, you know, if, if this building were thinking about us and putting us into different rooms, how do we fight the building? Yeah. And that's the challenge. And so the problem is if we just let this go unregulated, unchecked, you know, that's, I think, unfortunately, what our future is going to look like. I just wanted to add uh, very shortly, a uh, kind of optimistic note, that I think it, still, if we have this... <laughs> competition between authoritarian countries and, say, democratic countries, 
And democratic countries, of course, they, they have all these problems, but still, authoritarian countries, they are, by definition, they are very hostile to technologies. When I gave you this example with Mexico, the interesting fact that this technology of speaker uh, recognition is not used in Russia. Because for some stupid bureaucratic totalitarian reasons, they decided not to use it because there were some corruption things. And just because the authoritarian states, uh, they, they, they work like this. They, they cannot do these things. They, uh, they, they, they can try to do these things. They, they always fail. Lots of things you describe it. They were developed and invented in the West for some reasons. The authoritarian countries, they can steal technologies, they can, say, update it, and they can use it against the West, but when it comes back to the population of the countries living in authoritarian states, usually the governments lose. They lose this fight for control of information. We're going to take a question from number four. Um, thanks for the incredibly bleak picture of our daily reality. <laughs> it struck me that probably everyone in this hall is going to walk out the door and vote for that reality by checking their phone. <laughs> um, and they do that because the tools and services provided are fantastically useful. Yeah. So my question is really about innovation. The next stage of your architecture is clearly machine learning, AI. That's probably why Chris is working in it. Um, do you think there's any way that we can stop building that architecture? It feels like it needs to be treated like nuclear power plants or weapons-grade uranium. Is there any way that that's actually going to happen, or are we just talking into the wind? Um, so I, I, I agree with your analogy um, that I think... So first of all, I don't, have a pro I don't have a problem with people checking their phone. I check my phone. Like, I don't use much social media anymore because I'm banned on most of it. But, like, <laughs> I don't... There's, like, you know, I mean, like, I used to be on Instagram. I used to, like, you know, go and look at well-curated pictures of avocado toast. Like, I did that. <laughs> I don't... I think that that's, fu that's fine. Um, you know, I also, like, fly on airplanes, but I don't want them to crash. I eat food. I don't want it to poison me. I, you know, take drugs, and I don't want it to, like, give me cancer. Um, so I think that... You know, there's, I, I, I don't, one of the things that I don't, uh, you know, like about sometimes how this debate is framed is as, as if, like, technology itself is the, is the enemy. It's not. Like, technology could be the liberator. Like, I think, like, machine learning and AI could cure cancer. I think, like, the, the cure for cancer is probably in a computer and, and, and simulation. Like, so I think there's amazing things that we can do with it. It's just, like, we need to start talking about technological safety. Right? It's like we have consumer safety, we have engineering standards for all kinds of things. We need to start talking about safety. And the problem is that when people ask, like, oh, what can I do about it? Or what can I, a person do about it? It's like asking, well, imagine there's like a problem with all these architects building buildings that burn themselves and like trap people in burning buildings. What can we do to protect ourselves against burning buildings? What can we protect ourselves against like planes that don't fly? Right? It's, it's not, you should not have any responsibility in this. Because you are a consumer, you, you know you are you you are the thing you are the unit of profit, right? So uh, so the 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 entities in power and the entities that make money off of you should bear the burden and responsibility to a uh, make sure that you're safe and b have the burden of proving it to you. 
And if they can't, then I ask, you know, what is the point of an innovation if it's not safe? And so, you know, I think one of the things that we really do need is like a discussion about do we need safety standards for software and technology, and do we need a regulator with this, the, you know, the same kinds of powers, uh, you know, as a as a drugs approval agency to go and investigate and make sure that when something is built, due consideration to the effects of society has like been thought through, things have been tested, you know, before it gets rolled out. Andre, do you want to add? I think uh, it's a really great analogy, and uh, I wanted to use it because I think one of the things we need to fight with is uh, is 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 um, arrogance of people who develop these kind of technologies. And if you look at the history, of something we ha we got from history, remember when in the 50s and 40s, how arrogant all these nuclear physicists were. They also believed that they could communicate without borders, they believed in a globalized world, all these British, American, and Soviet scientists, they believed uh, that they could uh, build the world and change and fix, fix actually the world. And it was, it turned out to be a very dangerous uh, delusion. We got the Cold War as a result. So we should understand that the governments are there, the armies are there, the totalitarian regimes are there, and they actually, as with uh, nuclear f uh, physics, we know that uh, all these things, all these nasty things, totalitarian states, they found a very good use of nuclear technology. And um, that could happen with, uh, with new technologies too. So we need to, well, maybe to, again, to give them a history lesson. Look, guy, you cannot, guys, you cannot be that arrogant, unfortunately. We're going to take a question from number two. Hi. Um, my, my question's about how data actually works. And it's interesting that we're using these analogies to uranium and, and nuclear stuff. I wonder, to what extent does data have a half-life? Um, does it get less useful over time? And the reason yeah. I ask is because I'm sure, like myself, a lot of people here get the message. It's a really bad idea to hand over a lot of information about yourself to these various companies, but we've done it. We've done it for the last 15 years. So I wonder to what extent I appreciate that there are different types of data, but can you talk a little bit about, you know, what types of data get stale and become less useful over time, um, and to what extent can we hope to escape? And I think, relatedly, um, how do you think about data as compared to DNA? I mean, how permanent is it? Um, I asked because I was personally pretty horrified to see the trend of people not only doing these 23andMe or Ancestry.com tests, but also posting their results online. Yeah. And I just wonder, right. how does that inform your thinking? And also, to what extent, if any, are you aware of an intersection between those companies that are blending DNA stuff, which is inherent with our behavioral data? And, yeah. and I don't know what to, to what extent that is okay. permanent. That's for you. So uh, we, we, like, we are alive because of data, right? So you know, when we, we talk about genetic code, right? it's code. It's instructions for the creation of a living organism. Um, you know, so information has, you know, if, if, if a, a very um, complicated type of data can create us conscious, thinking, talking, feeling beings, um, you know, there's a fundamental property to the universe of like organized information, and that's powerful. 
um, to the point that you were making about half-life. It's like how different molecules, uh, you know, or rather different atoms can have different, different uh, half-lives. There's different, you know, um, most people's uh, gender, for example, changes less frequently than what TV shows they watch. Right? So there's different kinds of information that is more enduring than others. I think where the real danger is, though, is that to get back to your point about the arrogance in Silicon Valley, it's not just arrogance, it's also lack of, of self-awareness of where there's blind spots in terms of their own perceptions of the world. Most of Silicon Valley is like straight white dudes. Um, no offense if you're a straight white dude. But you do not understand, as a straight white person, the lived experiences of all kinds of people around the world. This is why Myanmar happens. Uh, if you know, people don't know, uh, Facebook entered Myanmar. Uh, the military in Myanmar capitalized on the fact that everybody was sharing information on uh, Facebook's platform, set up uh, hate propaganda, and tens of thousands of Rohingya Muslims were murdered in that process. Um, the United Nations warned Facebook and they just didn't listen. Um, they didn't even think that their, that, that, that their platform could be used as a tool to organize ethnic cleansing because that would never occur to somebody who is a rich white dude sitting in San Francisco, right? And so the problem that, that, that we've got in letting a, a, a private company that is in total lack uh, uh, of diversity around, you know, not just diversity, you know, within the United States, but like this is a company, these are companies that touch the entire world, that they are not giving due consideration to the experiences of all kinds of people. Um, and to get to your point about, you know, data, you know, sort of expiring or not being valid, I think that's actually the danger. It's not that you can escape it by letting data just sort of get stale and old. It's like, what happens when that is still used to profile you? And there's a very fundamental issue at play, which is that one of the reasons, one of the, value, the values of privacy is for us to be able to determine what information we put out in our family life, in our friends, our coworkers, and we get to be in control of that. And the whole points to sort of human development, where we go from, you know, infancy to adolescence to adulthood, is that we change as people, and the way we're allowed to change is we can forget, or we can, we can hold back information, or we can change or focus new information. And the, if, if that old or stale information, as you put it, is always remembered, if we create a society that never forgets, um, then how is it that you can grow as a person if like the world won't let you? And so I think actually like stale data is, 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 is as much a danger as accurate data because there's all kinds of problems that could occur with that. Do you want to add to that, Andre? Okay, I'm really sorry, but we have run out of time. Um, Sorry to the people who've been waiting for questions, but we are over time, in fact. So I would like you all to join with me in thanking our panelists. Chris and Thanks very much.